So I'm really pleased today to be joined by uh, two professors. Dr. Ji Hong is a professor in the Educational Psychology Department at the University of Oklahoma. Her research addresses how to support pre-service and in-service teachers in developing and sustaining their professional identity, motivation to teach, resilience capacity, and emotional strength. As a qualitative research methodologist and a Max QDA professional trainer, she teaches various qualitative research methodology courses and workshops. I'm also joined by Dr. Dion Cross-Francis, who is the Joseph R. Nykirk Term Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research lies at the intersection of mathematics education, teacher education, and educational psychology, and specifically focuses on understanding the psychological, effective, and cognitive factors that inform teachers' instructional decisions within the mathematics classroom. Today, we're going to be discussing Drs. Hong and Cross Francis's article in Educational Psychologists entitled Unpacking Complex Phenomena Through Qualitative Inquiry, The Case of Teacher Identity Research. This article was part of a special issue of Educational Psychologists on qualitative and mixed methods research in educational psychology that was guest edited by Dr. Deborah Mayer and Dr. Paul Schutz. So, G and Dion, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. So can we start off with you just giving us a brief summary of the main points of your article? So I think this article is a little unique in that it is neither single empirical research nor theoretical synthesis. This is an article that really um, showcased the process and values and challenges of conducting qualitative research. And we tried to also write this article in relation to our existing studies of our teacher identity. That way it can be more concrete and easy to understand too. So we organized this article to show the trajectory of qualitative inquiry process, starting from the epistemological orientation, which is in this case, constructionism. And from there, research questions arise and those questions guide the the thinking process and methodological choices, and then tied concrete method issues like sampling and data collection method and analytic steps. So showing this um, particular article, we tried to communicate and illustrate how and why qualitative research is useful and valuable in particular research questions, especially particular research questions that are related to complex phenomena like teacher identity. And we also wanted to communicate the challenges related to trustworthiness and publication processes. That's a really helpful summary. And I thought the article did an excellent job of illustrating how qualitative inquiry really can, as you said, address and elucidate a complex topic like teacher identity. So it might help our listeners if we start there. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of teacher identity, and then we can move to talking about how qualitative methods can unpack it. So tell me about teacher identity. So teacher identity is really complex concept. It it has been defined in many different ways, and oftentimes it is defined based on teachers' own understanding about who they are as teachers in relation to their their particular job. But it is more than that because their role as a teacher is embedded in their personal life, classroom context, school context, and larger socioeconomic political context as well. So that is why partially the teacher identity construct itself so complicated And well, identity itself is complicated to start from. And then it is not only teacher's subjective viewpoint, but also how other people view that teacher too. So in a way, we need to capture that um, triangulated perspective of our subjective viewpoint and the the other people's view of our teacher identity as well. 
I think another thing that is particularly interesting about teacher identity, and especially in the the nature of my work, a lot of the literature focuses on the process of becoming a teacher, from being just a student or a pre-service teacher to when you actually embrace and embody that idea that you are a teacher in the classroom and you can recognize and reference yourself as a teacher. And so a lot of my work is I work with in-service teachers. So they have already pretty much gone through that process. They see themselves as teachers, external individuals, people around them in their community identify them as teachers. But sometimes there is for them feeling well-situated in that identity comes with a quality component. So it's not so much am I a teacher, but am I a good teacher? And that is defined, how they take that up is very different depending, again, on how they're situated, the schools that they're in, how well their students do, how they're perceived by their colleagues, how the community in which they're embedded, for example, the mathematics education community defines a quality teacher. And how is it that they see that and take that up as a reference point for how they exist in that role? So that's been a particular interest of mine in terms of teacher identity. And there's not a tremendous amount of work done in that regard within the teacher identity field, but especially mathematics education. So I'm getting this picture of this kind of ecological systems approach where we've got teachers, we've got community members who view the teacher in certain ways, we've got systems that are maybe defining or at least making decisions that affect how teachers identify. Um, We've got larger social systems. And then, Dion, as you said, we also have longitudinal component where teachers are developing identity, both at the pre-service and the in-service level. And there's interactions amongst all those entities, all those systems, all those temporal periods. And that sounds to me really complex. And so it sounds to me like something that would lend itself really well to qualitative methods. So I guess I'd like to hear more about what you think qualitative methods can bring to the study of teacher identity, given all that complexity. So one of the aspects about the time dimension that you just brought up, um, the existing teacher education field usually focus on the pre-service teacher identity first. Because teacher identity is something that pre-service teachers started embracing more actively. Mm. Of course, some some pre-service teachers often report that, well, I thought about becoming a teacher from eight years old. So there are certain dreams and goals and ideas about what kind of job you want to have in future. But they actually start implementing and concretely start thinking about it in pre-service teacher stage. So most of the research started really focusing on that stage and tried to see how they establish their identity as a teacher, not as a student. So there is a huge transition from student to teacher movement, Hmm. which is why existing field in in EdSec and teacher education often emphasize that particular period of the time, starting from beginning of teacher education towards the end of teacher education Especially when you start doing field work, um, you get to experience a lot more concrete picture about what it means to become a teacher. So there are a lot of um, empirical researches around that particular area. And then once you start entering the teaching profession, now it becomes totally different story again. Because mm-hmm. now what you thought and uh, learned about in the teacher ed program becomes day-to-day reality and challenges. And you have to juggle and manage all those challenges and day-to-day responsibilities 
based on who you are and what you have learned. So teacher identity research, especially um, few of our studies, try to capture this longitudinal trend. Um, actually, some of our studies started from asking retroactive questions. When were the first time you start thinking about becoming a teacher? So try to get a little bit of pre-teacher program thinking process. And then how those pre-service teachers actually go through beginning years of teacher ed program and then later years of teacher ed program and how that transition changes once they start teaching in early career years. So using our qualitative inquiry, we can ask longitudinally over three to four years, tracking the same participants and see how their responses change over time. I think one other aspect that um, makes qualitative approaches particularly suited for what we are interested in is, I think overall, from my perspective and from G's perspective, this is not necessarily the goal for all identity researchers' work, is that I'm really trying to, to build knowledge around teacher identity to go back to support teachers, right? To help to either support them along the process, to help them to become the teachers they envision themselves to be, and in my area, to become better teachers of mathematics mostly. And so understanding the process of this development is really important, right? So we're not necessarily just looking at one, a snapshot, where are you at this time and how do you perceive or conceptualize that now? But we're trying to see how did you get to that point? What were the mechanisms that were involved in your development to this point? And how do you perceive that from your own perspective, but how are you taking in the perspective as others? And how is that helping you to move forward and to embrace and take up and transition into this role as teacher identity? Or once you have embraced the role as a teacher or the identity as a teacher, how is it that you then come to the point where you're thinking, oh, I am a highly high quality or highly qualified mathematics teacher? What is that process? It is understanding their own experiences from their own perspectives um, that allows us to then communicate that or, or translate that into supportive mechanisms for other teachers. Sounds like a great deal of, of meaning making. So people are trying to understand who they are, what the world wants them to be. And gee, as you said, there's this transformation, right? There's kind of pre-service meaning making, and then there's probably early in-service meaning making, and then probably some mid to late career meaning making. And the longitudinal piece allows you to get at that. And then Dion, as you said, there's this real question about quality. Um, and certainly that's a very hot topic in society, at least U.S. society today. You know, what makes a quality teacher? And my guess is that that's a really complex interaction of cultural values, social values, personal values, certainly policy decisions. Um, it, it sounds like a very dynamic process that, Dion, as you said, we don't know a lot about. And so it makes sense to me that qualitative research would be a great way to begin exploring all of those processes. Yeah, also given the flexible nature of data collection tools in qualitative inquiry, in relation to my earlier point about the transition and developmental trajectory of pre-service to in-service teachers, you can tweak those interview questions based on their um, earlier responses of the interviews. So like last year when I interviewed, you mentioned these are the main issues in your, in your school. How is it different now? So you can really gauge their changing pattern in a very detailed and nuanced way and track that over time. That, that is another um, big advantage of using qualitative research in this case. And I have to say, your paper did a really nice job of talking about 
you know, longitudinal qualitative research, which was something that I wasn't as familiar with. And so I, I encourage the people listening, if they're not familiar with longitudinal research and qualitative methodologies, to look at your paper because you describe it really well. And as you said, there's this really interesting perspective that you can get by asking open-ended questions and engaging deeply with participants over time um, that maybe you couldn't get in other kinds of longitudinal methods. I guess I'm interested in how you came to understand that methodology. Like, how was it that you decided to embrace longitudinal qualitative methods as ones that would be particularly informative for teacher identity development? I think that decision is tied to the the nature of teacher identity itself, because identity, by definition, is not fixed or stable trait. It is something that is continuously changing over time, depending on the context and interaction with the context and how the person is internalized and meaning-making in relation to that in this complex ecological system. So oftentimes when I start research from pre-service teachers, sometimes they portray really strong, positive, happy, joyful identity and very optimistic. But then I was really curious, how is the students will do in two years later, three years later, how is they going to change? So I always had this curiosity about um, their change over time. So the content kind of leads, the research question leads to this particular methodology. So when I start looking, you can follow these teachers longitudinally over time, and it's called longitudinal qualitative research. And in this particular two example studies that we wrote in the paper, we started from a pre-service phase in different stages, usually beginning and towards the end, and usually first year and later years, like second or third years of teaching. And often I ask exactly the same question intentionally, three, four ways of data to see how their responses change over time, but then also change the questions for each wave based on their current context and their major issues that they're facing. So it is weaving in two different threads of data that I ask same questions versus different changing questions as well and portray the full picture and holistic picture about how that person has been changing over time. And so if I can talk about this a little bit in the context of in-service teachers, and we didn't articulate this a lot or describe this a lot in the paper, you know, there are these pesky things called word limits um, when you're writing a manuscript, but for... um, For in-service teachers, especially for elementary teachers, the context is really important in this regard. And Gia alluded to that. So they go from being in a university teacher education program where they are protected from the realities of school in many ways. And then they transition into their own classrooms where the teacher of record and they have these kids and they're responsible for them for the entire day. And they're now being bombarded with the policies the school structure, dealing with parents, dealing with students from particular kinds of communities, communities that they're familiar with, some that they're not familiar with. And so they're really experiencing the real life day-to-day grind of what it means to be a teacher. And so the context has changed. And so understanding how is it that they're transitioning into their role and how they see themselves as a teacher is really important. For in-service teachers, a lot of these changes happens from year to year. So For example, teachers who have taught at a particular grade level for a long time often start to identify with the grade level. So they don't just see themselves as a teacher, they might see themselves as a kindergarten teacher. 
And in the changing nature of school environments, if you get a new administrator or if, you know, you just have to move schools, you may not be able to be a kindergarten teacher. And that creates a lot of tensions and challenges sometimes for teachers just by changing grade level, sometimes by changing schools and teaching a different population or different classroom of kids coming from different communities also changes how you feel and how you start to perceive yourself as a teacher in that context. And so getting a snapshot of a teacher and who they are in a specifically defined timeline within a specific context is quite useful for understanding teachers and how they're developing and how they're kind of um, positioned in that moment. But then also understanding as things change, as the context in which they are changes in different ways, understanding that process to which they experience tensions, they work through those challenges, and the COVID mechanisms that they use are also particularly important for really understanding the scope of teacher identity as a construct. It just it just seems like so many big transitions, right? So many moments where, as you said, how teachers identify what they think of themselves as a teacher or as a kindergarten teacher, whatever the case may be. It just sounds like so many potentially revolutionary changes in how they make meaning. I can understand how, gee, as you said, the kind of asking questions you've asked before, but also asking new questions could be so important to trying to capture what could be just a fundamental shift in who teachers think they are and you know the purpose of their role and that kind of thing. And I guess I'm wondering, when we get to the idea of analysis, you talked about abduction. So does abduction play a role in trying to understand these changes and these shifts? Yeah, so we often analyze data using both abductive and inductive reasoning as well. So inductive approach, we try to see um, concrete line-by-line transcript and the meaning unit within the transcript and try to gradually uh, identify the code and categories and themes from there. So across three or four waves of data for longitudinal studies, we could identify these are the common thread and common um, issues or common aspect of this teacher's identity development. But also abductive reasoning really helps us to figure out usually those um, little unique or unexpected responses. Hmm. Because abductive reasoning really helps us to identify what is most plausible and what is most likely. And whenever we face those unexpected, sometimes a little bit odd from our perspective, not getting to the big pattern or commonalities, we try to come up with some explanations and ideas about how this is possible. So in order to make that explanations, we bring in existing theories or existing relationships among concepts or, or categories and make cases probably under this particular conditions or under this particular circumstances, this teacher can construct meaning in this particular way. So we come up with multiple hypotheses why and how this can make sense and try to eliminate those less plausible hypotheses and draw the most strong plausible explanation. So this is why abductive reasoning kind of going back and forth between theory and data and gradually pull out the most plausible and likely explanations to to explain, especially those unexpected or a little bit uncommon finding. And I think for people that may not be as familiar with qualitative data analysis. I mean, they they might wonder how that is done rigorously. And I, I was fortunate. So when I first got to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I was exposed to people like Catherine Marshall and George Novelet, people who 
really focused on rigor and understood the importance and the value of rigor in qualitative analysis. And I think um, that really opened my eyes to how you can do the kind of abduction and induction you're talking about in a rigorous way. Can you help our listeners maybe understand some of the techniques used to ensure rigor in the kind of analysis you're describing? So I can provide an example here, and then G can kind of add to it in terms of the specific terminologies that are used in qualitative research. So one of the ways that I work with, um, and I'm going to build off what G um, had said earlier, in terms of sometimes these unexpected things pop up. And so you have to go back and forth between the data and the theory to try to understand what's going on. And so, I mean, we can all take it as a given that classroom environments are really complex. Mm -hmm. um, and especially the world, everyday world that teachers work in is hugely complex and changing and quite dynamic from day to day and from class to class. And especially in a mathematics education context um, in which I work with teachers mostly, there is a specific approach that we want teachers to work with students. So we, we want them to engage students deeply in thinking and to teach from a perspective of, you know, prioritizing students thinking and kind of pushing them to deeply engage with ideas. For some elementary teachers, that is a challenge for multiple reasons. But in our work with one specific teacher, in terms of describing who she wanted to be in the classroom, she talked a lot about supporting students and building their own thinking and challenging them to, to kind of really grapple with ideas. So that's kind of in our conversations, how she had described who she wanted to be and what she wanted to do in, in supporting her students. But when we observed her, we actually saw not much of that. She had a very enriching classroom with her students. They had really good rapport. But whenever students started to struggle, she tended to back off um, and then kind of, you know, kind of give in. Mm -hmm. um, she either lowered mm -hmm. the amount of the question or she tended to give them the answers. Mm -hmm. And that was particular. I mean, we're observing these classrooms over a long period, um, months. And so we have a pretty large research team, five of the graduate students, myself and another um, faculty member kind of really went through and kind of unpacked this data, trying to find snippets of video, what aligned with and didn't align with the way that the teacher communicated who they saw and perceived themselves to be. And then we, we unpacked that. So one person would read through the transcript and code and identify discrepancies or misalignments. Someone else would read the similar transcript and watch the video and then see if the coding aligned or misaligned. And then we would discuss where those discrepancies were. Then we actually met with the teacher and went through, this is kind of how we interpreted what you said. Mm -hmm. We're watching your video. Could you tell us kind of what you see in the video? So we ourselves established or try to get alignment in terms of how we were encoding, we were coding and interpreting um, what we were seeing and what we were reading and pulling from the research in terms of the struggles teachers have in engaging students in productive struggle, especially if they identify with themselves as teachers who care for their students. So they think about caring as you don't want the people you care about to struggle or feel any kind of anything uncomfortable. Um, and so the notion of mathematical caring as a different type of caring than is generally described in the literature was kind of what we were seeing and grappling with and seeing kind of unfold in this data. And so going back to the teacher, a form of what we call member checking and seeing how she interpreted that helped us to really make sense of what the tension this particular teacher was having in that moment, um, and then kind of bring together 
all of these three pieces of data to come to an interpretation that seemed to reflect exactly what was happening. Yeah, so I tried to add the, the terminology on what Dian has just described. We tried to have the rigor of data analysis by taking account the trustworthiness seriously. But also it is an acknowledgement that data analysis is not the separate step. It goes with the data collection phase as well. So as we collect the data, we try to confirm the accuracy of our data sources first. So it is called reflexive member checking, that you're not just sending the transcript at the end of the interview back to the participants to check accuracy. But throughout the interview process, whenever the interviewer has some questions or, or confusion, you can always ask back to participant on the setting, asking things like, this is what I heard from you. Did I summarize this correctly? So you can continuously getting feedback as you collect the data. So that way you can have more, more accuracy in the data sources. But also after you collect the data, as Dian so as an example, we go through a lot of discussion processes. So try to make sure there's a consensus between the researcher, the participants, and different research, research group members. So we often analyze data independently first and then have weekly meetings to talk about the coding categories that we generated and see what are the differences, what are the discrepancies, and why there are those differences. So talk through those uh, different interpretation of the data um, sometimes we need to redefine the code concept itself and clarify the context about what's going on in the participant's context. And those discussions help to have greater consensus about the meaning-making process here. So that, that's one thing that we often call credibility or transactional validity, that we try to increase the accuracy of the data source and data, data analysis. And that's such a great example. And it, it struck me, Dion, as you were talking, that it could be the case that that member checking could involve some revelations for the participant. I mean, you talked about how the teacher was thinking that they were pushing students thinking, but then also caring for the student and not wanting the student to struggle. But it sounds like you really reframe that as maybe not advancing a mathematical form of caring that's also important. So I guess I'm I'm just kind of curious, when you go back to that participant and share your interpretation, are there times where participants gain new knowledge or gain new insight or maybe change how they're thinking in ways that wouldn't have happened if they didn't participate? Uh, yes. And I think there are two aspects of this work that's particularly revealing for teachers. And it's one, when they actually see themselves on video. And we ask them, can you talk us through what's going on in this particular clip or um, or tell us your interpretation of what's going on or what were you thinking in that moment? Mm -hmm. Because we are just hearing what the teacher is saying and how the student is responding and their interpretations that we can make. But to get really at what is going on or unfolding, we want the teacher to actually look and then tell us how they see what's going on in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then it opens up a conversation, as you said, around, well, Let's unpack that. You know, why is it that you were saying or doing these things? How are you feeling in that moment? Or what was your goal? Oftentimes it start with, tell us what your goal was. And if you think that you may have achieved your goal in this kind of interaction with the student or with the whole class. And it's through that mm -hmm. process sometimes if there is the acknowledgement or the observation that, you know what, 
what I was engaging actually wasn't getting me to my goal, um, then we can help them to reframe. How is it that sometimes it's reframing how they interpret what's going on, or sometimes it's trying alternative approaches so that they actually do get to their goal. So I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because a lot of the, the research and data analysis process and this member checking process is not only to verify and to strengthen the rigor of the approach, but it's also a part of the professional development process for the teachers to mm-hmm. think and reflect about their practices and how is it that their practices and how they're engaging with their students are acting, helping them to meet their learner goals and also their teaching and instructional goals. That's a really cool way to put it, the kind of the professional development aspects of engaging in this work and that kind of reflection. I like that a lot. And G, you talked about trustworthiness. And I think you know, many people are interested in the ways in which qualitative researchers establish trustworthiness. And your article goes into really nice detail about that, which you talked about here. I think the other side of that is transferability. So very often people say, well, what can I learn from, you know, two teachers, three teachers, four teachers experience? Um, And the purpose of qualitative research, from my understanding, is maybe different and involves this idea of transferability. So can you talk a little bit about that and what the goals of qualitative research are when it comes to transferability? Yeah, thanks for bringing up that point. It is always one of the biggest issues about conducting the research and try to disseminate the research findings. Because oftentimes, people often understand qualitative research based on the quantitative, statistical, or probabilistic generalizability idea. It is based on the positivistic assumption, which is different from the constructionism that we highlighted and emphasized in our article. So instead of assuming the the one reality or absolute truth, qualitative research often based on this ontological and epistemological assumption, the reality is multiple and dependent on participants and researchers and other people that participants interact with. Because of the knowledge is also constructed, not discovered, and it is not independent of the researcher perspective. It is always interactive and how each participant has been constructing meaning so far, impacting how that person is responding at this moment with me as an interviewer. So because of this given different assumption, we need to really understand the transferability I'm glad you used used the term transferability instead of generalizability because the goal is not really to generalize the finding to a larger population. It is not that kind of empirical or statistical generalizability that qualitative research is aiming for. It is more about understanding particular issues or construct their concept in depth with rich information and data sources. So instead of generalizability, transferability has been used a lot more frequently in qualitative research exactly because of the reason. So it is not generalizing to larger population, but it is more about the question of to what extent and in what ways are these results transferable to other settings. So it is not those entire other population, but only if you share very similar context and circumstances and characteristics, then maybe, probably, these findings are transferable to other settings too. So that's how transferability is important and necessary for qualitative research too. And that's a really helpful explanation, and I think ties directly to the need to have thick description in qualitative research. But it's always struck me that the kinds of transferability that you're talking about and the constructionist perspective 
also applies to quantitative research. I mean, I don't know why quantitative researchers don't provide thick description because the same challenges, the same issues apply, right? Just because something worked in one particular context in a quantitative analysis doesn't mean that it's at all applicable in another context. But if the researchers provided more of that thick description, I think it'd make it more likely that there would be some successful transfer of quantitative findings. So I think qualitative researchers have really taken the lead in providing the kinds of information that everyone needs to better understand how to generalize, transfer, apply, whatever verb you want to use, findings from empirical work. So that's, that's really helpful. I'm glad you raised that point because I know a lot of times when I read purely quantitative studies, I'm often left unsatisfied because there's so many questions that I'd like to ask. Mm -hmm. Like, when was this collected? What was, you know, details around the sample that is often not included in the description. And I know sometimes it's kind of the limitations that we have in terms of the narrative Mm -hmm. that are put on us by journals um, and publishers. But a lot of that description helps us to really understand can we actually generalize from these findings? If I give you an example that is not necessarily currently relevant to to our article, but I'm always I'm always asking the questions when people use, say, demographic data and they lump all black people together, mm-hmm. knowing that African Americans mm-hmm. versus actual Africans who are immigrated to this country have very different experiences and would respond differently to particular kinds of items on surveys, uh, but we're all lumped together and treated as one group. So even just things like unpacking or disaggregating the data in ways and understanding how different subgroups within larger demographic categories would respond or even recognizing that in the limitations Um, often not there. It really influences how you can actually draw from those findings in really meaningful and useful ways. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic example. And again, I think, Dion, you mentioned something really important, and that is, well, you mentioned at the beginning when you said there are word limits to articles, and you mentioned it just now in terms of how you can only glean so much from what's written in an article. And in the paper that we're talking about, you discuss how it can be difficult to get qualitative research published. And some of that is because quite frankly, educational psychology has not done a good job of embracing qualitative research. I hope that's changing. I hope the special issue helps to continue that change, but just hasn't been embraced the way it should be. But some of it's more, you know, again, kind of mechanical, like there's just not enough space. Um, editors don't understand what is necessary to communicate good qualitative research. Reviewers don't understand it. So, I mean, what would, be, what would your message be to editors and reviewers to get them to better understand the needs of qualitative researchers and qualitative research? I think um, one of the first things is kind of what we're doing here, mm-hmm. just kind of informing the community um, about how is it that qualitative research is actually conducted. And if you notice, we're only really focusing, we're focusing on some of the epistemological underpinnings, mm-hmm. but then we're also kind of focusing on some of the methods that we use. And there are a vast array of methods. And so understanding that the reviewers that you select for particular kinds of pieces need to have someone who understands how qualitative research is done and what are the needs of the reader in terms of being able to interpret the findings correctly. And so maybe there needs to be a little bit more flexibility in terms of what they will allow in terms of space word limit. For example, to really articulate and to communicate that rigor that you're talking about, we're going to need a little bit more than a page to talk about the the methods. 
And so what happens oftentimes is we'll try to frame the article in the way that articles in a particular journal are usually framed with a really short methodology section, or in some ways, a really short methodology section and short finding section, as well, especially when it's a purely quantitative article, to recognize that to truly help the reader to understand the rigor of the research, that we need to provide detail in how we actually worked with the data, how we made sure that there was trustworthiness in the data and that it was a really rigorous process. And then as you mentioned before, is these rich descriptions are hugely important in terms of communicating from the voices of the participants, right? Their perspective right. in terms of especially teacher identity. And of course, the front matter is really important. You have to situate it in the in the research and understand, help the reader to understand why the approach that we're taking and the research questions that we're trying to answer is really important. And so there might need to be a little bit more flexibility in terms of word limit um, and also considerations about who is actually going to read this article. It can't just be, oh, this is, you know, teacher beliefs. Let's just find a teacher beliefs person or teacher emotions and find a teacher emotions person. But if the person who is the reviewer is a purely quantitative researcher on teacher emotions, they're not necessarily going to understand or appreciate the approach being taken, especially when some of the findings might be a little bit different from how they have conceptualized emotions using the instruments that they have. And so mm-hmm. it means having more discussion with publishers, with editors in terms of how to diversify their pool of their editorial boards and also the pool of reviewers that they use if they do want to be more open in terms of thinking about, you know, expanding the kind of work that is disseminated within the educational psychology field. Yeah, this is a really um, big issue that I've been thinking many, many years because all those major ed-psych journals, if, if you actually look at the scopes and aims in the journal page, they often accept, says that we accept all methodologies, including qualitative and mixed methods too. But when you actually look at the published articles in the journal, it's, we wrote in the article too, usually three to 4% of articles only use the qualitative data. So because of that, there's almost like an established culture that if you have this kind of even if it's a good qualitative research, you are less likely to submit that particular genre because of the fear that given the trend, given the history, maybe it's not likely to be accepted. So one thing that I've been thinking is how can we tackle this culture and really diversify the methodology? One way might be um, more more proactive approach that not just um, listing the the, the genre page that we accept qualitative and mixed method studies, it can be more proactively saying this special issue, we, we highly encourage qualitative studies. So making intentional space for qualitative project can be one way to maybe start making more wider conversation about other types of methodologies too. And then just another plug for active and open conversations with people in the field Um, especially those who hold the power, the journal, the publishers, and the reviewers in terms of being more open to thinking about qualitative perspectives, approaches, research, 
as being strong, rigorous empirical work. And then also, as you said, not just articulating that in print in the journal or on the website, but then also taking active steps to say, if we value this work, then we're going to treat it um, with the respect and make sure that we are dis- we're sending out this work to people who can actually really critique it in really rich ways and meaningful ways. Those are really important points. And, you know, you, you can't, if you're a journal that has only published quantitative work, you can't just, gee, as you said, kind of say, now we want qualitative too. It's, you know, you, you can't just suddenly shift and expect people to either believe that you've made that shift or, Dion, as you said, to have the reviewers and the expertise and the knowledge to really um, understand what qualitative research do. Because qualitative research very often challenges established ideas, or at least presents new perspectives on them. And you need people that understand the purposes and the goals of qualitative research and and how to evaluate it and embrace it properly. It's, uh, sadly, it's kind of like uh, academic departments that suddenly say, you know, oh, now we really care about diversity and inclusion. Well, you, you got to show us. You can't just say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dion's laughing. That's, it sounds like a knowing laugh. Too much experience in that area, Jeff. Too much experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Not surprised, but sorry. But back to qualitative research, Uh, educational psychology needs to engage in more reflection to truly embrace the method and all that is required to disseminate its findings well. And that kind of discussion certainly happens within the pages of the special issue of educational psychologists where you published your work, but then it, it also needs to happen, you know, in the major organizations. It needs to happen within the journals and the publishers. Um, it needs to happen. Um, and the funding agencies. Yep. Funding agencies for sure. Um, and G, as you said, in terms of other journals, empirical journals, they need to be putting out special issue calls that demonstrate they understand what they're asking for and are prepared to accept it. Yeah, the funding agencies piece is huge. We could have a whole podcast about the I know. challenge of getting qualitative research funded. So this has been really helpful, and I just want to thank you both for the wonderful work that you've done. I encourage our listeners to check out your 2020 article on Educational Psychologist entitled Unpacking Complex Phenomena Through Qualitative Inquiry, The Case of Teacher Identity Research. Um, so Dr. Ji Hong and Dr. Dion Cross-Francis, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 